The following QCCS Mackay Cutters Change the Game episode contains critical and confronting conversations that some listeners may find upsetting. Audience discretion is advised. Change the Game, proudly brought to you by the QCCS Mackay Cutters. Hi everyone, welcome to QCCS Mackay Cutters Change the Game podcast podcast. My name's Mitch Cook, and I'm joined today by Mackay Mayor Greg Williamson. We're going to talk about uh, climate change um, and how it's affecting our region and community. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Yui people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Greg, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Mitch. Good on you. I know you're very busy and I, I do really appreciate you giving your time Not um, at all. to talk through this, uh, this topic because... For me and for a lot of people out there, it is really important that we acknowledge climate change and the effects it has on our uh, on our world and and especially here in Mackay and, and little things that we can do to um, combat that and work work with climate change. But uh, you had an article uh, published 2019 in the New York Times. Correct. It was, mm. it was really good to read and come across, um, you know, doing my research on this and I'd like to understand probably how that come about and the, the things in that article and the projects that uh, were written. Well, New York Times actually reached out and, uh, and their theme, of course, was regional councils and regional communities, particularly around uh, what we were going through at that particular stage in rebuilding a couple of our beachfronts mm-hmm. that had been destroyed by Tropical Cyclone Debbie and it had taken a long time to actually bring back... And the, the big questions around in our society about, you know, the public money that goes into the recovering of uh, the beachfronts uh, for public, uh, sort of public protection of private property. And so the, the New York Times was really interested in, you know, how a regional council actually tackles those sorts of problems because we've got 32 beaches in our area. And we've got uh, about 16 of those have fairly large communities built on the beachfront. Now, if you had your druthers, you wouldn't do it again. You wouldn't allow that to happen. Some of the beaches we've got, like Bucasia, are actually growing. So, you know, the, the sand movement of, uh, of what happens grows a beach like Bucasia. Other beaches, like McEwen's Beach down in the south, like Lambert's Beach, like Midge Point, they, they get affected every time there's really large storm surges or really large cyclonic activity, and they are shrinking. Mm-hmm. McEwen's Beach lost about 70 metres of beachfront over the last probably 100 years. Lambert's Beach, we lost about 30 metres over the last four or five years. Uh, and, and Midge Point, during that, uh, that last tropical cyclone Debbie exercise, you know, there was uh, 10 or 20 metres lost in the, and a and a public asset, the toilet block, almost fell into the sea. And, uh, and Lambert's Beach was the same. So, you know, those are the, they're, they're critical discussion points because that's public money, that's ratepayers' money that, and some of the state's money that have to go into rectifying those beaches, uh, bringing them back to usability and protecting the public assets. In our case, it's roads, it's toilet blocks, it's the sewer facilities, it's the public environment on the beachfronts. And then if you take Midge Point, for instance, immediately behind that, it's the first row of houses at Midge Point. So if we didn't spend $2.8 2. at, at Midge Point, 
in recovering and putting a seawall underneath that dunal system at Midge Point. If we didn't do that, the next cyclone would see waves crashing into the front bedrooms of those houses at Midge Point. And so that, that's the big question, and that's what, uh, that's what the New York Times was interested in. So how does, how does a council like ours, and there's stacks of them on the eastern seaboard of Queensland and Australia, how do councils actually resolve those sorts of problems? And the bigger problems in, say, New South Wales, where houses were falling in and cliffs were falling in mm. as, as the sea just eats away. So it's, it's a real problem for coastal communities, and that's what the New York Times was interested in the most. How do you handle it? Yeah, okay. So is it a combination of uh, the weather events and also the increase of temperature in our ocean? Does, the, does that, obviously that plays an effect of um, these weather events happening um, and where we live plays part in that too. But is the water rising? Uh, is that also an, an issue that the water is um, you know, going into these areas and then not coming back out? or is it- It's not perceptible in terms of what we measure, that the water is rising. The scientists tell us that. And look, you know, you've, got to, you've got to place a fair amount of, uh, of confidence in what scientists are saying, that water levels will rise. And if it rises, whatever it is, six inches over the next 50 years, we've got to be cognizant of that. Mm. What is affecting us in terms of climate change, when we talk about climate change, is the increasing severity of the weather events that we get. Yeah. Now, we've seen that. And whether you're a believer or a non-believer in this whole climate change debate, I've, you've, you've got to, over the last 50 years, say, yes, the severity of the weather events uh, seems to be on the up. Now, sure, Mackay, the biggest cyclone ever to hit the Queensland coast came through Mackay in 1918, and then seven weeks after that, a similar-sized one wiped out Innisfail. So we've been down that path before, but what we're seeing now uh, is is a severity of the of the weather events, the flooding that we've seen in southeast Queensland of of the past, and and all of the uh, cyclonic activity that that has been off up and down the coast over the years, we've got to take some notice of the fact because we as a community live on the beach, mm. and we've got a lot of public assets, a lot of private assets on the beach. Now, as I said before, Mitch, if we had a green field site to start building Mackay again, we wouldn't build it so close to the beach. Not, not because of all this climate change, but because beaches ebb and flow over the years. And when you put environments onto the beachfront, like the artificial harbour that was built in the 1930s for a very good reason, that changes the way that the sand moves up and down the coast. Sand's move, moving up and down the coast for you know, um, millions of years. That's what happens. You put a groin there and it all of a sudden changes the way that the sand moves. So when you look at Lambert's Beach now, the sand would normally move up the coast if the harbour wasn't there, deposit itself on on Lambert's Beach and move on. Mm -hmm. But now it skirts all around Lambert's Beach and is filling up the bay. In, uh, in in the west of, uh, of the Lambert's Beach area. Yeah. And, it, and Lambert's Beach has been scoured out over the past 20-odd no, no, years. So all of those sorts of things play into this whole beach movement exercise. But the fact is, we've, uh, we've seen a lot of activity over the last uh, particularly 10-odd years that we've got to pay attention to because we're managers of public money. Mm-hmm. And if the scientists are telling us that this is going to increase 
And we've got no benefit uh, in actually saying, well, that's rubbish, it's not going to increase. We've all been down that path before. We've got to pay attention to that. And if, and if these weather events are going to increase, that, that means that a lot more public money is going to be needed. So are there action plans in place or have we had uh, in your time in, in council action plans in development where we are combating Combating climate change, climate change. or yeah. we're, what we're trying to do is uh, is combat the the climate change effects. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing um, scouring out of beach beachfronts. If we are seeing the effects of flooding, yes, we're we're doing a lot of work on that, and it's all about p- protecting public and private assets. That's what we can do as a council. We can, you know, we can't affect more than than uh, what we're able to do. I mean, yeah. our budget's $350 million a year uh, and a lot of that goes on just providing normal services that people expect a council to provide. But in terms of protection, after Tropical Cyclone Debbie and all of, this, all of the, uh, the flooding we had in areas of Sandy Creek and, uh, and the top end, the, the western southern end of the Pioneer Valley area, which in lifetime memory had never had flooding of its kind, so we got that in uh, Tropical Cyclone Debbie or the days that followed Tropical Cyclone Debbie and we got flooding in areas that nobody could remember having flooding in. So wh- what we've done now is uh, instigate a whole lot more river reporting mechanisms. They're automatic reporting stations. They're all down uh, Sandy Creek and the top end of the, ve- of the valley right now. Mm-hmm. So it gives us a, a great forewarning and our, our council team have developed a very, very good flood map. It's a... Um, it's a interactive map system where we can feed into it what the expected storm surge is, what the expected river heights are, what all the expectations that the bomb tell us might happen. We can feed that into our system and that tells us almost instantaneously where the areas of trouble are going to be. And that's why, as a local disaster management group, we can get in and, and uh, you know, save properties, save animals, save people. Yes, and that communication's key to that. And I've seen recently with the, the weather events we've had here, where we are with BB Prince Stadium, that East Mackay area, that is a zone where it can flood, uh, you know, even up towards where the stadium is. And so, are those when you put that communication out, they're just warnings, or are they? Well, it depends on the severity, Mitch, of uh, of what is what they're telling us. We need to expect. So whether we're going to have to evacuate 20,000 people, all of Mackay in the urban area and the city, South Mackay, et cetera, it's all built on the floodplain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when you go back long enough, the mouth of the river used to empty out near the Ocean International Hotel. Oh, wow. So the cyclone, I think it was 1888, somebody will correct me, but I think the cyclone of 1888 um, changed the course of the river by moving the river mouth further north. Okay. And uh, if you read the Harbour Master's reports around that area, everything used to be exported via flat top at that stage. They'd go out of lighters that were loaded up on the, on the Pioneer River around about where, you know, uh, the, around about where we've got the Leichhardt tree now and all of that. There used to be all warehouses there. They light it up under lighters and take it out to export at the main wharf at Flat Top Island. Mm-hmm. The Harbourmaster's report of around that era said that that cyclone carved six nautical miles off the journey from the river to Flat Top. So, you know, the river mouth has been moving north. So all, all of those things have been 
in existence for a long time. If it's going to get worse in terms of all of that activity on the coast, then we've got to be, we've got to be aware of it. We've got to pay attention to it. Yeah, and I wanted to talk through some of the cause and effects, and we've already been talking through that in our own backyard um, in terms of the the tidal changes and the sand movement. Um, what what else are we seeing other than the beachfront in our region? Is there anything that the council is um, concerned about, or something that we want to focus more on in the future? Well, we're you know we're we're not concerned. We've as as our messaging always is. Mm-hmm. In uh, particularly cyclone season, storm season, you just got to be prepared, and that's what we're trying to do now. Like in my term as mayor, in the last six years, uh, we've had tropical cyclone Debbie. We've had all of the floods, unprecedented floods that followed that. We've had an earthquake. Uh, we've had bushfires. First time, first time in living memory of most people, at the top end of the valley, at the end of the year, we had uh, humidity at ten percent never been heard of before. And that's what sparked all of those bushfires, that we lost 30,000 acres of rainforest at the top end of the valley. That'll take 150 years to grow back. That's, that's never happened before in, in our lifetime. So you've got to be aware of things like that happening in our area. 10% humidity at the end of the year is unheard of for us. Mm. Uh, and and those are the sorts of things that... Uh, and then we've got, of course, the pandemic. So... What we have a local disaster management group for is to look at all of that, put out preparation plans so that we as a community can cope. But we're not alone. You know, everybody else has got these same sorts of problems that they're facing. And I, and I guess if we, if we acknowledge that we've got to face problems and that we do it together rather than sticking our head in the sand, then we'll come out of it okay. Yeah, and that connection from federal to state to, to local Government's really important to make sure that happens and being proactive um, like you are, Greg, is, is important to that. What about how is that relationship working between between the three and then flows down to to you and your council um, and probably the changes you've seen too. Like, you know, you've said, you know, you've been in the position since 2016, which is a great terms um, and it's going to keep going hopefully but you also had, so. a, had a stint back uh, I was 91 to 91 94. to 94 I was mayor of the city yes. yeah so what, yeah. what are the changes you've seen from probably when you were first in to now um, is everyone working together a little bit more and um, yeah just talk us through that well, it's been huge changes. I got under council in 1888. 1888. Listen to me. <laughs> I'm not. I am not that old. No. Okay, 1988. Yep. And uh, and then I got elected mayor uh, in 1991, and served 1991 to 94 until we amalgamated the Mackay and the Pioneer Shire councils. Um, and look, there's there's massive changes since those days. Today, in local government there's much more expectation that councils will do a lot more in communities. You know, once upon a time, councils used to be roads and rates and rubbish. Those, those are the, the three R's of local government, but that doesn't... Councils expected today to play a huge role in community leadership, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean it's uh, just focusing on delivering the things that a council got to do. That's our core business. You know, we've got to put out potable water. We've got to take away your, your, your waste. Uh, we've got to supply sewage services, et cetera, et cetera, roads, drains, 
all of those sorts of things that that's what we do. That consumes a large amount of our business. But when you talk about waste, we're also now really, uh, we've got to abide by the fact that the state government is working towards a zero waste to landfill by 2050 or earlier. And that means for councils, what do we do to educate the public to say, we're not going to accept your waste to go to landfill in the next 10 or 15 years. So we've got to work a way around that. We've got to, we've got to educate the public about what it means to be a, uh, what, it, what it means to be environmentally aware of the fact that the more we put into landfill, the more problems we're going to have, not, not us, not our kids, but our kids' kids are going to have huge problems with the landfill and the leachate and the methane gas that's been given off by, uh, by big landfill sites. So I think the state's on the right track and we've got to work with them. So those sorts of things were never, they were, when I first got into council and, and I, was, I, I bought in wheelie bins actually, and, and that was uh, in 1992. We didn't have wheelie bins, we didn't have recycling. Wow. So it's, uh, it's come a long way since those days. And now, of course, now we're talking about zero waste to landfill. So what does that mean? What, what does that mean for you and your home and what you put in the rubbish bin? So how are we going to get over that? How are we going to have zero waste to our landfills by 2050 or 2030, whatever the date might be? So be more uh, reusable rubbish, uh, waste compost. But we, need, we need to think about that. How, do, how does each household come to grips with not being able to put stuff in a rubbish bin that's going to end up in a landfill because we're not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we will not be allowed to do it. It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about it and you, if I take my mind to the future of when we're not allowed to do it, you know, we'll, hopefully it will be natural and a, a habit that's just ingrained and then we look, look back now and go, oh, we used to throw out all this rubbish. That's, and and it, wouldn't that be fantastic? So that means recycling. But recycling has its challenges too. Now, since China stopped taking uh, Australia's recycling, we've been forced, even as a council, to think about what we do. We've got a huge recycling plant that we operate, our uh, materials recycling centre. We call it the MRF. It's a, it's a fantastic state-of-the-art centre. It can separate little pieces of uh, aluminium from paper, etc. It, it, it is a fantastic centre. But if we can't send it anywhere, if we can't recycle it, you know, it's, a, it's almost a waste of money. but So we've got to find uses for that. That's what council has done for glass because China's not taking any glass anymore. We're already using some, some glass componentry that's crushed very, very fine into, in road-making material. Mm-hmm. So we've got a road already done uh, just as a, as a trial road uh, down in South Mackay and, and using glass material. As, uh, as some of the road base so, and some of the bitumen mix. So, you know, there's all those sorts of things that councils have now got to get involved in, which we didn't get involved in before, because it's a way of saying what we produce as a community, we've got to be responsible for. And they're looking to councils to do that, to take that responsibility. And I think that's right. I think, you know, we're, we're the holders of the public money that uh, we charge people rates to live in our community because we supply a lot of the services. But... An equal responsibility of all of that is we as a community have got to take the responsibility of getting ourselves 
into a future that we can hand our kids and say, or our grandkids in my case, and say, okay, we've done all that we can to get you here. It's over to you. Yeah, and to that too would be illegal dumping. You know, that's probably something yeah. on the radar now. That's um, you know, hopefully it we that won't get worse um, when we go into the future of not being able to throw out our rubbish. You know, we've got to make sure those things aren't happening as well. Well, you're right, mate. And unfortunately, if it's just a big stick approach, mm. it will get worse. Yeah, because there would be a lot of people in the community. A don't think they should be going down that path or be don't want to pay for it. That's what happens now. You know, they're either too lazy for the illegal dumping that happens in our community now. They're either too lazy to actually drive it to a transfer station or drive it to the tip uh, and pay or use a, use one of our vouchers. They're just too lazy to do that. So they'll pick a farmer's headland and turf it all off into there. I think unless we have a very, very good education program and a very good program that's supporting local residents to say this is why we need to be part of this because there's a lot of there's a lot of doubt right now you you you've got to admit yeah there's a, there's a lot of doubt right now about climate change is is it all real well i think we've got to pay attention to the fact that we are going to as a community have to acknowledge the fact that things are changing as a community we've just seen a federal election where Whole rafts of our community have said enough is enough. We now need you to focus on climate change and, and what we do as a community to combat it, what we do as a community to actually get ourselves out of this waste stream that we've been in for centuries. You know, they have buzzwords like the circular economy. Well, in my view, nobody knows what the circular economy means. We've got to actually be grassroots educating everybody about what it means to be a, a community that looks after itself, that makes sure that we're not contributing to any species destruction, any environmental destruction uh, that we can get out of. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't mean we've got to shut everything down. It doesn't mean that we've got to stop mining coal immediately, you know, but because you know, the coal that we mine here in our hinterland, that's majority metallurgical coal. That's you make steel out of that. Now, there's no, there's no way that they're going to make steel out of anything else other than metallurgical coal for the next probably 20 or 50 years. Sure, they'll come up with some sort of a, some sort of a mechanism that they can make steel, but they haven't got it at the moment. Yeah. And, and the forecast is that they're not going to have it for a very long time to be in an economical sense to be able to continue to make steel for the construction of the world. And, and, and you've, got to, you've got to also think about the the third world economies who, who need power and electricity and steel and they need white goods. And they, you know, so there's 300 million people living in India without access to electricity. Mm. How do we as a world make that happen for them? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more to this environmental debate because those 300 million people, they're burning fossil fuels to actually get f uh, uh, power to cook yeah. their meals by. So it's, it's not just a simple matter of saying, yep, we're going to stop all, uh, all, all coal export to power, to power, uh, power stations. There's, there's got to be a humane way to tackle the world's problems and it's all not wrapped up in just, you know, what, what somebody thinks is, uh, you know, they belong to the Green Movement and they live in Melbourne. It's, it is much broader than that. Yeah. 
But it, but we know that there's a sunset clause on thermal coal mm-hmm. to produce electricity. We've got to work towards that. Everybody knows that. Um, so and, biofuels and and that's that. where we can come in as a region. Yeah. At the I've been to two world bio conferences in uh, the United States, and the first one was uh, oh, it was about four or five years ago now, and it just consisted of. Uh, I don't know, eight or nine hundred people in the room, mostly boffins, telling us how good the bio futures is going to be, but nobody could tell you how anybody's going to make any money out of it. And until such times as we can get to private enterprise making money out of producing the biofuels of the future, then it's not going to happen. And so, I think we're getting closer and closer to that all the time. And when you look, look at Mackay. We, we grow a third of Australia's sugar right here. There wouldn't be a month ago by, mate, that I wouldn't have somebody in my office talking about using sugar as a feedstock for the bio industry. And that's, that's, that's what happens now. Now, they also don't know that for the past probably 30 years, we've been producing electricity here in Mackay by Mackay sugar in their cogen plants. They've been producing about... 30% of the sugar, oh, sorry, 30% of the power needs of our region in their wow. cogen plants. So that's by burning the gas, producing steam, creating electricity. Mm. It's a green energy cycle. Yeah, it's impressive. And we've been doing it for a very long time. Since 1928, we've been producing ethanol at, uh, at the plant at Wilmar Sugar in Serena since 1928. Wow. We've been involved in this whole green movement for a very long time. The problem is, you can't make money out of it. Mackay Sugar cannot make money out of, out of doing what they do to produce electricity and feed it back into the network. So there's systemic problems about, about us as a nation and with a national electricity grid not being able to actually partake of the, the bio industry to produce electricity. And it, in its it's political issues. It's problems with the, the policies that are driven by state and federal governments. When we came to council in 2016, one of the first things we did was because our electricity bill as a council is $8 million a year, we decided that, well, what if we put up a 35 megawatt power station, that is solar power, because we're mainly a day business, you know, like most of our 26 facility sites um, they run during the day, except for the mech, you know, that's, that's a night business, but we, we could deal with that. So if we did a 35 megawatt power station on our land at Paget, we consume about 15 megawatts of that with all of our, all of our service delivery at council. We put out an expression of interest. We could sell the other 15 or other 20. Um, we put out an expression of interest. Got tre- tremendous interest from, uh, from players all over the world wanting to pull a, put this solar power station in. And we found out we could produce electricity at uh, eight cents a kilowatt hour, but Energex, which is a Queensland government Congo who owns all the poles and wires, wanted to charge us twenty cents a kilowatt hour to distribute it. I think we only pay twenty six cents a kilowatt hour now with Ergon, so it was you couldn't do it, mm. and that's the problem all over Australia. So those are some of the systemic issues that we need to settle right now. If uh, the, the cogen plant at Racecourse Sugar Mill, which produces electricity in a completely green cycle, if they could run a line 
down the, down the road to our brand new water treatment plant, which produces the second best water in the world, uh, down the road to our water treatment plant, we could run that on purely uh, bioenergy. Yeah. But can't do it. <laughs> They've got to feed it into the system where they can't make any money out of it. You know, those are the systemic issues that we're facing. So, look, we, uh, we are very, very keen on doing what we can to capitalise on the fact that we grow a biofuel here. Mm-hmm. In, in our region. And the only, the only sort of data that I can see that's, that's challenging the, um, in terms of the sugar industry's output and sink rate is from the Indian industry. I know our industry is about to do it this year. The Indian industry have said that uh, they, they're the biggest sugar industry in the world. The Indian industry has said that for every 20 tonnes of CO2 that that industry releases into the atmosphere in its production cycles, etc. The whole growing cycle removes about 200 tonnes in a sink, okay. in a carbon sink. Yeah. And so just imagine if we were able to double the size of our sugar growing crop right now, and we can, we've got the, we've got the land to do it. If we were able to double the size in support of a biofutures industry, we're also acting as a carbon sink. Yeah. And you know, the, so there's there's a whole range of issues that uh, that you know we're facing and we're dealing with every day, and uh, we certainly haven't got our head in the sand in terms of uh, the future of of what we need to do in the environment. But it sounds like Greg, we're in a good place for the future, for going forward with our industry being majority uh, sugar. Um, that we that we can work to work through these issues with the right parties and people to you know, give everyone, give our region a, a better future or a sustainable future as well. I, th- I think, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head, Mitch. I mean, I think what the message here is that nobody's got their head in the sand. Yeah. We, we are working on it. We know that we have a, a huge biofutures future here in our valley. Nordzuk are the owners of Mackay Sugar now. You know, they are well experienced in this in Europe. They don't grow, they grow beet in Europe, but they're very experienced in how they can use the feedstock for a biofutures uh, setup in the Mackay area using sugarcane. And, and of course, our growers, as long, as long as they get paid you know, a good amount for what they grow, they'll grow it for anything, mm. not just to produce raw sugar to put in your, in your tea as, as white sugar refined down the track. They will grow it for anything as long as there's a, there's a dollar in it. So all of, the, all of the ducks are in a row for us, in my view. We're working with a fairly large international company right now who want to come to Mackay as part of a second-stage uh, trial project at, uh, out near Racecourse Sugar Mill. And then down uh, Rosella Way, they're looking at a large tract of land down there. If it all comes together, they're doing a pilot program right now in the United States using sugar as a feedstock to produce a protein replacement for egg white. Now, now what that means, and I didn't know much about this at all until I got the briefings on it, but what that means, if you, if you can get a protein replacement produced in the biosphere for egg white, then the world changes. You yeah, know? less uh, farming. Yeah, well, it, there's, a, there's a whole range of things that, uh, that would be impacted by that. But it's a, it's a huge operation, and they, they've got to go through and prove it, of course, but there's an opportunity. 
to give you an idea of how big their projected plant is, they'll require 70 megawatts of power to run it. Now, that's almost about half of what we produce to run Mackay at the moment. So, look, so those sorts of things are happening all the time. And, and they're coming to us. They're, you know, they're, they're interested in our community. Yeah, plenty of offshoot opportunities from... Well, I believe there is. Mm. And, and the message for young people, the message for people worried about the environment is that, you know, we haven't got our head in the sand. We are working actively to make sure that we can utilise the things in our region the sunshine, uh, the the annual rainfall that we get, all of these things contribute you know, to growing sugarcane, and uh, and and sugarcane can be a feedstock for the biofuturess industry. Yeah, it's exciting, Greg. What about um, if I think about climate change? The first time I've sort of learnt about it or understood what it was was you know going through school and um, really the nineties opened a lot of people's eyes to the hole in the ozone layer and you know, what that is and how it affects us and especially living in this region is the sun yeah. penetration from, you know, those holes in the ozone layer. You don't, I don't hear too much about uh, the hole in the ozone layer anymore. Um, you know, and we've reduced a lot of emissions to combat, you know, that growing. What do you know about it? Probably not much more than you. Okay. <laughs> and you're right, you know. Who's heard about the hole in the ozone layer in the last 10 years? Mm. And I, and I guess that's that's the thing that goes against the scientific industry, where they raise the flag about these these things, and suddenly they disappear. You know, the crown of thorns starfish on the Barrier Reef. When I was growing up, that was going to destroy the Barrier Reef. Yeah. Uh, well, it hasn't, and the crown of thorns is still there. And so those are the those are the sorts of instances that people point to and say, "Well, the scientists told us this was going to happen, and it didn't happen." And we're still there, and uh, the hole in the ozone layer hasn't cooked anybody. So, yeah, look, I think science has come a long way since uh, since those days. I don't think they're telling us about the hole in the ozone layer now because there have been significant advances around reducing the gases that uh, that were, in their view, responsible for that. But it's also raised the level of awareness. I think most people would be aware today that. You know, if if we don't have to use aerosol gases, uh, then then why why use them? You know, even even the things like the spray cooking oils, you know, they're they're on they're on the way out now because people have got these trigger things that you spray your oil onto your fry pan or your barbecue with. Um, so so the level of awareness, if we keep chipping away at it, raising that level of awareness, and there are doubters. There are always going to be doubters and people saying, well, this is rubbish, you know, that I don't believe any of this. Well, you've got to believe, I think you've got to believe that if the world with however many billion people we've got in, what is it, six and a half billion now, growing at a rapid rate of knots, we are, as human beings, changing the environment we live in. Now, we can't continue to do that ad infinitum. Because nature will come back at us. But that's been that's a demonstrated fact over the years. So ad infinitum, if we continue to grow by billions of people every ten or twenty years, whatever it is, we're going to have to adapt to way the way we live in our environment. Here in the Mackay region, we're you know we're blessed. We we live in a tremendous environment. We live in uh, sunshine. We live in 
you know, good rainfall that produces the water we need that allows us to grow our crops. We've got space. We've got space. We've got beaches. It's not like that in India mm. or, China. You know, or China or a lot of other areas now in, in the world that are rapidly outgrowing their livable space. So then do we start, chaos begins, we start... Well, you know, I'm, I'm not being alarmist, but when, when those sorts of things happen, geopolitical forces take over and look for new space. Hmm. And, and so we, we've got to learn to be able to live as we live right now as human beings, aware of the environment, aware of you know the number of trees we uh, we cut down on an, on an annual basis and even so if you go back and have a look at India the 300 million people in India who don't have electricity well, they're going to cut down trees for wood or they're going to they got to find some grubby old coal that they burn in their stoves to cook their meals for their kids at night and so where where is all that where's all that coming from yeah so this is this secular argument around uh, if we can stop cutting down trees now, I don't know how many how many football fields worth of trees that they cut down in the Amazon every day, but it, it's significant amount, and it's all to do with clearing space to grow feedstock for animals and human beings who live in the area. Now we did that mm. when we're growing Australia. We did that, so. Are we saying to the rest of the world, stop doing that now because uh, we don't want you to do that because you're cutting down uh, the oxygen producers of the world? What are, we, what are we going to do to allow them to live? It's a, it's a, it's a worldwide problem and it's, it, it really is not simple. It's not simple to solve. But I know this, that if we don't start talking about it, we take our heads out of the sand and say, together, as the world, we need to solve it. Yeah. So then what are the little things, we've, and again, we've touched on a few of them, but what are the little things at home we can do? You know, when we talk about recycling, you know, t- talk me through some ways at home that we can lessen the impact for climate change and also for you as a, um, a local council. All right. Well, let's start when you get up in the morning. Okay. <laughs> and this is, I give this uh, speech to kids at school, you know, like yeah. what does a council do? Well, let's start when you get up in the morning. What's the first thing you do? You, do you go to the toilet? Yes, you go to the toilet. Okay, so who do you think takes care of that? <laughs> it's council, you know, like that's, what, that's one of the first things. Went, Ooh, okay. And, uh, and, and so that drives home that message and then you turn the tap on. Now, once again, if we could redesign the whole circuit, we wouldn't be producing potable water at an enormous expense to flush down the toilet, but that's what we do. And then you turn the tap on and you clean your teeth, say, in the morning. Most people will turn the tap on, just leave the tap running mm. as they clean the teeth. Why? Every drop of that water that goes down that sink as you leave the tap running, someone's had to pay for you. <laughs> yeah. Or bulk, you know, the whole, the council pays for it and then charges the community. Because it, it's very expensive to produce potable water. Uh, and so, and then the rubbish that you produce. I'm sure kids today are telling their mums and dads, don't put that in the bin. Can that go in the recycle bin? How can we recycle this? Why are you buying plastic bags now? 
kids know more than anything today the value of recycling. That's what we can do the most of. When you think about what you put in your bin, there's still people that put normal recyclables in the normal bin. And there's, there should be no need for that. Mm-hmm. We have a good recycling system. We need to make that work. At the moment, we're getting rid of most of the recycled product that we produce here in Mackay, which is fantastic. We're also taking stuff from Rockhampton at the moment because uh, their MRF, their recycling plant, has uh, broken down. So we're taking stuff from Rockhampton. We're doing a pretty good job at recycling. And then, and then it's just about the consumerism, about why, why do we need all the stuff that we, that we are you know, renowned for? We're, we're great consumers. We're going to have to th- we're gonna have to think very seriously about that. And then the, the usage of power. Power is uh, going to be very expensive in the future. The, and how that's going to work out, we don't know. But the production of power, as coal prices go up, as the geopolitical uh, landscape changes, production of power is going to become very, very expensive in the future. Yeah, and we're seeing cost of living at the moment um, increasing. And it's, you see that when you walk into the supermarket to buy groceries at the moment but yeah bills at home um, as you're talking about are only going to increase so we need to be prepared in the future to reduce those costs well how do we how do we reduce it and and you need to start thinking as families about all right so what do we do as a family to reduce it um and it's simple things like in the old air conditioners that we have no, no one's saying you know turn off your air conditioners and sweat it out in the summer We've come a long way and we're a very proud society that, uh, you know, earns a lot of money and there's 25 million Australians. Uh, we, we do pretty well. But it's about have you got the most modern facility in your air conditioning or is it a 10-year-old air conditioner that just chumps through the power all the time and, uh, and is one of the old-fashioned ones that's you know, not, not produced in the modern, using modern gases, etc. So all of those sorts of things, how do you change the, uh, the power usage in your house? Uh, do you have to have air conditioners on all the time? I mean, I'm one to talk because I do like air conditioning because <laughs> it, it allows you to sleep well at night. Mm. Um, but though, we get, we're going to have to look at that because, you know, you look at right now the um, spot price of, of steaming coal uh, before COVID was about $60 a tonne, 60 to $70 a tonne. It's over 200 So... That tells you what's happening in the world at the moment because of the geopolitical instances that are going on in Europe and because of COVID and because there's 600 boats lined up outside uh, the ports in China that just can't get in, you know, stopping world trade. There's a lot more pain to come in all of this. So as a community, we've got to ask ourselves, how can we do it better? How can, how can we get in, ourselves involved in what we do and do it better? Good luck. <laughs> well, I never said we got all the answers. I just said, you know, we're aware of the problems, yeah. and that's half the game. You know, if if you can be if you can be aware of what we're facing, that's half the game. Yeah, and school's going to play a big part of that education and awareness, as we've been talking about, and um, people having ownership over their choices. So, making better choices uh, when we wake up, uh, when we go to the supermarket, what we're buying, probably growing our own food a lot more in the future too. Um, being 
sustainable ourselves in our own backyard. I'd like to so, and that's what my sort of second last question I wanted to talk about with you was our region and what does the future look like for us? We've talked about the biofuels and the possibilities within that, which is great. What else? Do, um, what else is going to be Mackay District's future that we we hopefully can predict now? Well, it's pretty hard to predict the future, you know, like... Well, this is going to be it, recorded, it, Greg, and if it happens, then we'll come back to it. That's right. <laughs> so, you, you know, you've got to be very, very careful about what you say yeah. in terms of, of predicting the future. I mean, I've never picked the winner of the Melbourne Cup, so it's like... Um, well, what would you like to see? I know where we are at the moment. Where we are at the moment, our regional economy is very strong. Mm-hmm. It's strong for a number of reasons. It's strong because uh, we've, we've got a great agricultural sector. And the agricultural sector has been keeping us going ever since 1866. Um, that agricultural sec- sector at the moment is seeing some pretty good prices. And if we could actually improve upon that in terms of uh, using some of the agricultural output in sugar for the biofutures, that's, that's a future that I can see we can play a large part in. Yeah. And, and, and then, of course, the resources sector, it underpins a significant amount of our economy. Over 50% of the regional GDP is underpinned by the resources sector. Now, the resources sector is going through a metamorphosis at, at, at the moment as well. We're talking about new jobs in, uh, in artificial intelligence and machine learning for the resources sector. You know, the automation that, that is occurring out there that will allow us to actually do that job, uh, not, not cheaper, but do it in a, in a more uh, effective manner that, uh, that produces for the region and then allows our young people to actually you know, get involved at another level rather than being a truck driver. Like, like RFI. You're designing, well, you're designing the methodology to make that truck work on its own. Yeah. And then you're, 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 you're actually working that truck just like they're using drones right now. They're, you're working that truck at a desk in, uh, in an environment that's uh, it's much easier. And, and yet it's still being produced. And you can, you can get a lot more efficiency out of that, a lot, more, a lot better fuel burn. That's, that's just the proof. You know, it works much more efficiently if you can automate the process. And that saves on fuel, that saves on environmental stuff. Uh, so so that I think for our region, the, um, the future of the resources sector, it's going to be around a long time. We just got to make sure that we able, we're able to utilise our young people in the future jobs yeah. that are going to prop that industry up as well. Tourism is another great aspect for our region. Mm-hmm. What we saw through COVID, our tourism industry grew because it was based on the domestic tourism product. where Australians couldn't go anywhere overseas, <laughs> so they started travelling internally. Yeah, And we, we've, seen a, we've seen a great boost in regional tourism. We we live in the you know in a blessed part of the world here, mm. and I think what we've done over the past two years is show more of our part of the world to more people than ever before. Now it's up to us to capitalise on that and bring them back. So, so tourism and our place in the world is, uh, I think, something that we need to capitalise on right now. So I see a bright future for that. So if you look at the contributors. You know, the sugar industry is now contributing around $700 million a year to our community, our community. Mm-hmm. The tourism industry, even in these bad times, has contributed around 450 to $500 million to our region. 
The resources sector, there's about $1.6 billion in wages for 17,000 employees in our region, contributing directly to our region via wages alone uh, for the resources sector. So I don't see any of that going away anytime soon. The opportunity for us, though, is to capitalise on a thinking process, thinking of ourselves as a world-class city, not as some adjunct of Brisbane, Mm -hmm. thinking of ourselves as a world-class city playing on a world stage, because we do. We do in the sugar industry, we do in the resources sector. 10% of the world's seaborne coal leaves our ports, 10%. And we are a world player, but we don't think of ourselves like that. And so there, there is an opportunity for us in, in the future to cut the apron strings uh, and the umbilical cord from Brisbane and, and try and produce here in this region the mentality that we can play on the world stage. We're doing it already. We don't take enough credit for it. We need, we need things to happen in our region, like our data connection ability, like our ability to have uh, uh, you know, the pipelines available to us that world headquarters can be here. And you know, people might say, oh, what, what a load of rubbish. But Queensland headquarters are here for a lot of the OEMs uh, and you know, the sugar industry, et cetera. Why not the rest of it? And if we combine that with Mackay, Isaacs and with Sunday, the 180,000 people who live in Mackay, Isaacs and with Sunday, we are powering the world already. We're one of the world's most iconic tourism spots in the Sundays. As I said, the amount of uh, seaborne coal that leaves our ports alone places us on the world map. And, and in terms of environmental future, in terms of uh, the future for the biosphere, We've got it right here. So our opportunity is, uh, is immense. We've got ports. We've got great, uh, great airport connections. When you think about Mackay, you put a, a, a compass in Mackay and do a, a central spread. We're, we're in the centre of Queensland. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and, and for us as a distribution point, uh, for, we, are, we are much better off than Brisbane, or Newcastle or Melbourne, we're much more centred to ter- in terms of trade with Southeast Asia, much more centred than all of those, and we've got a much better environment. So, I mean, I, I can see a really bright future. It's <laughs> I tell you what else we have, Greg. We have a really strong sporting community. We do. Too. And rugby league in that fact. And hopefully in the future, we could be vying and competing for an 18th, 19th, 20th NRL licence one day when we... We acknowledge who we are and uh, understand that we have we're, we have a lot to offer, um, not only Queensland but you know the rest of the. Mitch, wouldn't that be good? An NRL license? I would. Not well, to, in the not too distant future, mate. So how do we make that happen? Well, we need to set ourselves up for success, and part of that is what we've been talking about: um, making smarter choices for the future. I think we've got an opportunity with the Olympics coming up. And, 2032 and in our infrastructure around our our region and putting the right things in place and if the stadium redevelopment plan um, goes ahead and and can you know have we can have a venue in a stadium that will be when it's completed uh, fit for purpose for an NRL team I think I think we've got a lot of the ingredients to to be competing for that I'm just preaching to the converted here mate I know we, we have the ingredients. 
We don't have the focus, in my view, of the state on this area. Mm-hmm. So when I talked about all the coal that leaves our port, what I didn't say is the billions of dollars that go into the state coffers yeah. on the royalties that come out of, uh, out of those ships leaving our ports in Dalrymple Bay and Hay Point. Mm-hmm. Billions of dollars every year. Now, we don't see enough of that coming back. So as a community, we've, uh, and we're trying as hard as we can, but we've got to beat the drum long and hard about our ability as a community to contribute to the nation, which we are doing. We absolutely need to see a little bit more of that, what we're contributing, spent back here. And so that's my job and that's uh, the council's job and our elected members. And because we have good people here as well. I think that can't be over shadowed too like i think the nrl games last year showed us that we are thought or we are starting to be thought of of a place to bring events and um we can you know produce a good nrl game you know we had six last year we've had well seven in total over with these games coming in uh to the region as well and uh, well the reason as you know the reason the roosters wanted to have a home game here was the reception they got last year that's right and, and that's our community. That's, you, you're absolutely right. It's the way Mackay gets behind. doesn't matter what the sporting genre is, especially mm. rugby league, but whatever the sporting genre is, the feedback that I get all the time is, wow, you know, you guys are so friendly. You, you, you just put everything into making sure that it all works. And that's, that's the reason I think the, the Roosters have said we wanted to come back. Changed their fortunes too, didn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, t- turned them around. With bull riding, so, there's the, music, yeah, absolutely. Music uh, events, you know, the list goes on. But yeah, we are a place for people to take notice of. Well, it's just about running the uh, flag up the flagpole about Mackay, and uh, I don't think in that last the semi final weekend, uh, the last semi final weekend of the NRL, that they had their highest ever viewership yeah. of online, two point eight million people saw the fact that it was being run in Mackay. Now, you can't buy that. You just cannot buy that exposure. And so hopefully we're going to capitalise on that, mate. Definitely, especially in the women's game too. It's another growth area and one we uh, are great supporters of and our region produces great talent in both male and female athletes. One last thing, Greg, uh, I've taken up a lot of your time and I've, again, really appreciate it, but I want to uh, probably just learn a little bit more about what are some things uh, if locals, local male and females coming through school, just out in the workforce, um, what's a couple of pieces of advice that you can give them? Uh, maybe they have ambitions to make a, cha- make a difference. Uh, maybe they want to go into politics. Maybe they want to go into mining or, or sugar or, or teaching, whatever it is. But what's some pieces of advice for ambitious young Mackay District people. Not even, not even just ambitious people. I think the general advice, Mitch, has got to be get involved. Mm-hmm. Get involved in your life. Doesn't matter what. It, you don't have to be a rocket science, scientist. You just got to get involved. You just got to take responsibility for your life, and have a go. You know, the as you know, the, there's there's so many people don't have a go because you know, they fear, the fear of trying, the fear of being rejected. Um, what other people will say, the shame. Mm. It's, you know, you on and on. You see it all the time. you just got to get involved. If you've got a good idea, speak up. 
you don't have to drive that idea home with a sledgehammer, but speak up, get people on your side and get involved in life. Because, you know, when you, when you think about it, it just flies by so fast. You don't want to get to the end of your time and say, I wish I should have done, I should have done that. I wish I had have done this. Uh, it could have been like this. You don't want to be there. You want to be like, um, I think it was uh, one of Mick Jagger's sayings, that I want to get to the end um, and be sliding into the grave with a bottle of beer in one hand <laughs> and chocolates in the other, shouting, that was a fantastic ride. Yeah. <laughs> now, most people don't do that. Most people go through their life thinking that, oh, well, it'll be better when I get this. It'll be better when I've, you know, I've got a job. It'll be, 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 get a, be better when I've got that promotion. Or It's always a step forward that they're thinking about will be better. Life is better now. Yeah. And if you take it on this day saying, well, this is what I'm going to achieve rather than putting it off into the future. I think the, the, the main thing about my advice to anybody and young kids, that it, my advice is just get involved. Get involved in your community, get involved in your life and make sure that you, know, you, you do it with all the good intentions uh, because we do, ha- we do have a fabulous community in Mackay. There's, there's no doubt about it. And there's this sh- sure amount of opportunity that, you can get involved in in this community. So just do it. Great advice, Greg. Um, I can relate so much to that. And, uh, you know, through everything that we've talked about, I'll definitely relate to what, you, what you're saying. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. You have done in the past, continue to do in the future. And we're very lucky to have you. Oh, thanks, Mitch. I'm very proud to represent this community. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Change the game. Proudly brought to you by the QCCS Mackay Cutters.